Well, grace and peace to you this morning. Uh, I am delighted to be here today uh, to share in this time. Seven, 70 years is a, is a wonderful, uh, if I can have the liberty to say, a wonderful accomplishment. And to know that uh, the average lifespan of a church that's not connected denominationally or have an affiliation to some group um, generally it's less than 10 years and we're talking 70 years here so that's that certainly uh, speaks to the grace of God and his approval um, on this that was started 70 years ago can everybody hear me clearly I want to make sure uh, is the uh, volume good enough because I'm, I'm going to pipe up here in a minute so don't worry about that I'm just visiting right now uh, I secondly want to uh, thank each of you who were aware that my wife passed and uh, you prayed for me. Thank you so much. Um, I, I have uh, sensed and felt the grace of God in ways that I didn't have to sense and feel it before, or at least I wasn't aware that I needed to sense and feel it that way before. But God gives us exactly what we need when we need it, and he has done so. Uh, Chuck came down. Uh, to North Carolina, which uh, uh, that was special to my heart, to see the brothers Dale and Fran and uh, many people that I've known uh, for many, many years. Um, as I began to survey um, that day, and, and we celebrated, we celebrated that day. It was, not, it was not a mournful day, it was a day of celebration. And as I looked over that day, I began to think about the number of years that I've had relationship with most of the people who were there. And it was very few that it was under 30 years that we have, that we have walked together and uh, invested into one another's lives, received uh, the grace of God from one another's lives. And that was a great testimony. And uh, it, it, spoke, it spoke to me. Um, so, so I'm very thankful. Um, I'm at a new place, of course, in life. Uh, I never thought I'm one. I'm actually one of the younger brothers in here, except for the young, the youngsters who are, are under 40 years old. Uh, I'm I'm 40 and plus a, a few more. <laughs> I, I don't know, if Brother Dale is uh, the senior, the senior among us, but at some point in life, if you live long enough as a man, you will become the senior man. Among among the group, uh, you know that you're you're connected to, and so um, time is moving by, and I pray that I'm learning. Uh, I've never closed the door to learning, because when a man does that, about the only thing he's fit for at that point is a coffin. When you stop it, when you when you say I've learned it all, there's nothing more to glean from God or from life's experience. Yeah, yeah, you're ready to get on out of here. And so since I'm not quite ready to get on out of here, uh, I, I'm still in a, in a learning uh, experience in life. And so I'm not quite sure where everything is going. So that uh, causes me to walk by faith and not by sight. I'm doing a whole lot of praying. And I ask you, please, keep praying for me. Uh in some ways, it's like I got a 
a red bullseye on my forehead. And uh, I think you can read those tongues and you understand what that means. That's why I want you to pray for me. Let <laughs> uh, the will of the Lord be done in each of the. I didn't catch all of uh, Dale ministering the word on Friday night, but from what I could really catch and lock into is that he was to some degree taking you down memory lane and helping you to recall what the foundations of this ministry were and, and still are and the core values that have shaped this ministry for 70 years. Now, I hope I'm capturing what you were, you were doing. And um, some of it, he was very pointed and direct. And um, if you hang long enough in God, you'll find out that that's not offensive, that sometimes we need that prophetic finger, so to speak, placed right at us and say, this is what you should be doing. And quite frankly, because he has given us his grace to do it with, there's no legal excuse why we shouldn't be. Are you hearing me here today? And so we need reminding of that every now and again. Now equally, the Lord spoke through Moses to Israel when they came in the land. He said, during the Feast of Tabernacles, every seven years, you are to, relate, you are to rehearse the entire law to the nation. Now if you take 70 years, that should have been ten times that the vision has been rehearsed because what the law was was the vision of God. And it was how God would relate to them as a nation. He was revealing what his heart was like. It wasn't just, you know, some principles the, to force you into behavior that you really don't want. No, it was God really saying, I'm having a conversation with you. This is what I'm like. And because you are marked for representation of me, then you've got to understand what I'm like. Because therein, your representation will be proper. And so he said, every seven years, you are to rehearse this before the nation. And so when I heard him rehearsing, I said, that's good. And then uh, Rodney yesterday, when he began to lay out the fact that in those first 500 years, we see God moving in such a way that when he first brought them out of Egypt, he needed a man that was dynamic enough to maintain relationship with him. And that's why he had to choose a man from the tribe of Levi. Because Levi, by definition, means joined or attached. And the task that was at hand required someone that would stay joined to the Lord, regardless of what the circumstances may be. Because there were going to be some tenuous situations in that wilderness. And normally, um, people who don't really understand why they were delivered will behave in a lot of different ways that's inconsistent with their deliverance. And so after three months, God said, Moses, tell them who they are. 
because they have actually lost sight of who they are, the stories being told to them, or they've never known. So you got to tell them who they are. Tell them that they're a holy nation. Tell them that they are a kingdom of priests. Tell them that they are a peculiar people. He said, tell them who they are. And I find that after slavery, one of the first things that God will begin to do is provide you with right identity. Because if he doesn't, then you'll still think you're Pharaoh's bondman. And you'll still be carrying the residue of a former experience that he's already brought closure to. And so when he began that, I began to think about it. And then, of course, when it was time to leave that desert and Joshua was chosen, he was from a different tribe. You see, the one thing that Moses was capable of doing is getting them out. But he couldn't get them in. He could sustain them until the season changed and God was ready to raise up another leader from a different grace pool because Joshua was from Ephraim who was from Joseph. Are you with me? You see, so it's not the same grace that God will use at all seasons. And as men of God, we've got to understand that. Now, in the New Testament, you always really should be preparing to replace yourself. Always. Always. Because, you see, at one point, I was Joshua. I was Clark. I was the youngest preacher. Now I go a lot of places, and it's difficult to find anybody older than me, except when I come here. And so Joshua's assignment was different. It was not only to get them in, but it was also to make sure that every tribe, every clan, every family inherited. That's quite different because it's going to require a different strategy. Now, did you hear Brother Dale when he said, what these two young men are going to need is strategy. That was a little bit different than Papa Sexton, a little bit different than my brother, because the season is different. And so he, he accomplished that to a degree. But when you read the book of Judges, you'll find out that once again, there's another shift. And this time, the leader doesn't even come from Ephraim. It must come from Judah because now we have the setup for what is moving toward the season and time when God can install his king and not the people's king. They got theirs first. And then God said, now, I'm going to show you what my man is like. And so Judah had to come to the forefront with this because when you go back into the prophetic blessing that Jacob spoke over each of his sons. It was spoken of the scepter that should come forth out of Judah. And so now we got the beginning, the baby steps leading to that. And with Judah meaning, now I will praise the Lord. So it's not by chance, you know, when you begin to observe all this, 
that you see these things unfold. So what you have is a man initially that had a tremendous gift of relationship with God. The second man, he learned how to tap into resources because he came from a marketplace pool. Joseph was a marketplace man. And then the third, from the rulership position because Judah was about rulership. So relationship, resources, rulership. And I can see that unfolding uh, quite vividly here. So what I want to do today, that was, that was, so to speak, what Rodney did. He was saying, here's the projection. This is where you're going. What I want to do is uh, backpedal for a moment, and I want to put the book in to what Brother Dale did. That's what I want to do. So I know that uh, <coughs> I'll try to be as, as uh, timely as I can. Uh, you've known me for a long time. And so, therefore, you know that a few minutes will not serve my purpose. <laughs> so let's hang in here. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be as expeditious as I possibly can. Um, but let me, let me uh, talk to you from a conversation that God began with me uh, shortly after and uh, transition. There are different times in my life when the Lord has begun a, a conversation. When he initially started it, I was unable to participate because I didn't have the language, nor did I have the substance inside of me to participate. I had just begun my walk with God, and he began to delineate, this is what I'm going to do with your life. I was 17 years old. Now, like I said, at that point, I could not really uh, engage in the conversation with him. Now, of course, you know, I have questions like, okay, uh, where is this going? Why does it need to be this way? Uh, his initial instructions were you're to study Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, 2, and 3. At that time, coming out of the Baptist background, um, you didn't pay attention necessarily to addresses and, and uh, what you were um, you know, being taught in Sunday school, vacation Bible school, BTU, not really. Uh, we had other things on our mind, uh, some of it savory, some of it unsavory. Read between the lines. Um, but when he began that conversation with me, and I scurried home to, to see what this was about, I realized that if you're going to build a life properly, you've got to have the right foundations in that life. And God sovereignly spoke to me about laying the foundations properly before I could go on to maturity. I thought that, uh, that the instructions that he gave in that conversation, you'll go to the nations of the earth to declare the gospel of the kingdom. Again, as far as the gospel of the kingdom, didn't know anything about that. The only people that I heard using the word kingdom were Jehovah Witness. And what we enjoyed doing was beating them up every time they showed at the door. So, but nevertheless, they were preserving a word in the earth that the church had long forgotten. And in due season, God would bring about a reformation in the church that would reform that word into our understanding. So I began to look at all the different occasions where this word kingdom was used. And I saw that that was the nuts and bolts of Jesus' message. He was a preacher of the kingdom. Okay? So I knew it was important if I'm going to model and imitate him that I needed to give myself to understanding the kingdom. 
I thought that this would happen within three and a half years, and uh, you know, because I read he trained them for three and a half years, and how foolish I really was. That that you know, uh, you 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 have a lot of young idealism, only to have to come into reality. I wasn't even married at that point. I I thought I was going to be like Paul, but I soon found out I didn't have Paul's grace, because the moment that uh, Anne showed up. Uh, I was a bit overwhelmed. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I tell young men, I said, now, if you believe you have that grace, uh, I'll tell you, here's where your test is going to come. is when God presents her to you. And if she comes through your eye gate and gets in your head, you are in trouble. Because I started going to sleep thinking about her. I woke up thinking about her. I said, God, this is not me. Man, I felt like I was having an out-of-the-body experience or something. I said, this is not me. I said, normally the only thing I'm thinking about is the word of God. I'm thinking about getting into the next prayer meeting. And here I am thinking about this woman every day. I said, what's going on here? I can't be like Paul if this is going on. I soon found out. That it was a setup. <laughs> and the Lord had really set that thing up because there were things that she was going to add to my life that would make ministry effective. And I wouldn't be walking around here with a head swollen that this big because every wife is uniquely gifted to unswell their husband's heads. <laughs> Regardless of how big his ego may be. Well, there's a way that she has. Oh, God. I miss that, tell you the truth. Uh, because she's the one I could count on that would tell me exactly like it was. She, was. she was actually not even five feet tall. But she didn't mind looking into my 6'1 face and saying, now listen, whenever she said that, or we need to talk. I, I, it took me a while, young brothers, to learn to interpret those tongues. But what that really means is I need to talk, and I need you to listen. It wasn't about you really engaging in a dialogue. No, 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 no. Then this was a monologue, and uh, I need you to listen. You know, and so I'm a, I, I, I learned after a while to, to listen because, really, I could soon say I heard from God, and it sounded like my wife. Now, I didn't want to say that at first, you know, but, but that really was the truth. And so God brought her to me. I didn't go out searching for her. That's exactly the way it was in the beginning. God brought the woman to the man. And the man recognized what God was doing. And then Adam placed his stamp of approval on it. He said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called womb man. Now, isn't it interesting that God didn't say, <coughs> this is what you say. No, it was already in him, placed there by spirit. What to recognize 
and what to say. Now, here's the last point to this. The reason I know she got in his head was because when it came time to choose between God and her, who did he choose? Well, you don't have to be afraid. Who did he choose? You read the story just like I did. He knew exactly what the command of God was. It was clear. And yet he still chose her. You know the same thing is still happening today. <laughs> There's a lot of times when the man has a direct word from God and something will attempt to circumvent that. And rather than choosing God, he chooses that. And so, you, you know, these were lessons I had to learn because eventually I was going to be pastoring a church. <laughs> and a lot of them were coming in with messed up marriages. And I had to be able to see through all the stuff that they were telling me quickly, hear what they're not saying, as well as what they're saying, so that we can get right down to it and not beat around the bush. Because, you see, at 2 o'clock, I wanted to watch the pinstripe priest officiate. <laughs> and I didn't want to be stuck in an office going around in a circle and listening, oh, God, I've heard this 15 minutes ago. No, I tell them. I said, you got 10 minutes to get down to the point. Tell me exactly. Clark, are you listening to me? Josh, you're listening to me. I said, you got 10 minutes to get to it. I said, I'm not about beating around the bush. Now, if you're going to leave him, then just go ahead and tell me you're going to leave him. I'm not going to co-sign your note, but just go ahead and tell me. And I'll tell you, whatever you're going to do, just go ahead and do it quickly. But whatever you decide is on you. That's too direct, isn't it? Because when they would leave the office, they'd say, Pastor doesn't have any compassion at all. You know, they're, and they're crying this pool of crocodile, alligator and crocodile tears. Now, what kind of tears do you cry up here when you don't get your way? Crocodile tears. I mean, they're, you know, they're crying this pool of alligator and crocodile. He's got no love at all. I'm leaving the church. You know what I say? <laughs> bye. I love you, but bye. Don't ever try to talk anybody into staying. Well, they've already made their minds up to leave. Yeah, yeah. They're already, they're already half out the door. Yeah, they really are. So, you know, th these are things as a young pastor you begin to learn. And these are lessons that we have to pass on. And so working with the congregation is like when God married me first to Ann, then to the congregation. I had two women to deal with. One of them was a single <laughs> entity, and the other was a corporate entity. But if he hadn't have prepared me with Ann first, there's no way I could have handled that assignment. Now in being re released ministry-wise apostolically, that requires a different kind of grace. But my learning where I cut my teeth was first serving under Apostle Sanders in Jacksonville for 15 years, doing it gladly, then my father releasing me to go to Florida. Did you hear what I said? My father. Really, well, brother, didn't God have to do it? No. 
I'll explain it. You say, God didn't have to just, yeah, I say unto thee, my son, go to Florida. And too much of that goes on. And what you end up producing is unauthorized ministries. If your father that God has set over you as a grace pool to care for you, to help you, to develop you, to discipline you, if he doesn't see it, you better wait until he sees it. And that's what I did. And that's why life was blessed for Ann and I. And so there were so many things that I learned. The conversation has amped up now. I'm able to participate with the Lord at a level that I could not 45 years ago. And this is what he began to deal with me about. I've given my life to be not only a serious student of the word, but also to be a very clear teacher of the word. My training in education, the methods have assisted me in that. And so I'm grateful for that. But when my wife was sick, she didn't need a teacher. She needed a deliverer. And what I had to acknowledge before the Lord was that I had given myself in the words of Jesus to the scriptures, but I need further acquainting with the power of God because only the power of God could deliver her from her condition. I didn't make no excuse about it. I said, Lord, I, I really need help here. And the conversation then has been crafted around that reality that we give ourselves to the scripture and then we must equally be able to operate in dunamis because that's the word for power is dunamis. It's the explosive ability of God in any situation that's necessary to change that situation. We prayed night and day. We confessed every one of the healing scriptures. I believed honestly until those last few days that this thing was going to turn. Yes, she had received medical attention. They did what they could, but they weren't God. For a moment, I was extremely angry with them, over $3 million. And then they look at you and say, I can't do anything else. Now, I wish I could tell you standing here today before God that I was pleased. It didn't bother me. No. I had to work my way through that thing. Times I get down to pray, I'm angrier after I get up from praying. Now, nobody knew this but God and me, but so you can't hide from God. I never tell anybody. They thought it was still my poker face like it normally is. I said, oh, no. When I began to tell it, I said, there were moments I'd get down to pray, I'd get up angrier than when I got down to pray because your mind doesn't go dead because you're praying. Are you with me? And so finally the Lord spoke to me. He said, stop talking and begin to sing. Begin to sing before me. 
And it was in that that my spirit started to arise above the fray that was going on in my mind. And then he spoke to me. He said, what you're, what you're not seeing is the sovereign element of this thing. He said, don't you realize that if I wanted things to be different, that one breath from me could have changed this whole thing at any time. And I said, Father, you're right. And that's when I gave it up. I was no longer upset with the doctors, no longer upset with anybody. I just gave it up. I said, you're right. What I'm thankful for is they didn't call me because there's a disconnect is, is, a, is, is what they call a professional disconnection when they say they can't do anything else and they turn you over to hospice. It was that, that, that was bothering me too. But in that disconnect, I realized later that was healthy. Now, because that disconnection took place, at first, I was burning. Burning. And if they had a call, possibly, I would have fiddled with 14 years of witness that Ann had laid down in that office. Constantly witnessing, telling a doctor who you know is a heathen. I believe God. God's going to turn this thing around. She constantly said, never wavered. Never wavered. And it's possible if they had have called me, I could have messed up 14 years in a matter of minutes. And God spared me from that. He really did. Am I happy that my thinking was there? No. Am I, try to, am I trying to hide that my heart was broken? No. That I was swinging between. It was like the pendulum one time swung toward anger, and next time it swung toward pain. No, that was real. Real. And there was no way apart from the help of God that I could escape it. But when he spoke to me, he said, one breath could change this whole thing. I said, Father, you're right. You're right. One breath could change this whole thing. It was at that point that I remembered again that things that we teach about sovereignty, we really don't understand it until we face situations in life like this. Now you're talking about wandering. Literally, I know hundreds of thousands of people. When you preach in 20 countries, almost all over America, you know hundreds of thousands of people. Nobody was calling. And that's okay, I'm not indicting anybody. Because that was part of the whole process. For you, like Jesus, to know what it is when you invite Everybody to pray with you. Now, I didn't say nobody was praying. There were people praying. I know Dale was praying. I know Chuck was praying. I know. And others. But when, as a caretaker, you're sitting there on that couch alone, and you're trying to figure this thing out, what can I say tomorrow that will be different, that will change this thing? And 
is nothing you can say. And you're alone. So Levy Knox from Mobile, Alabama, called me, and he said, Steve, I need to talk to you. I said, okay, go ahead and talk. He said, the first thing I want to deconstruct in your mind is that you are alone. He's got my attention. Because when somebody just shoot right in and hit the bullseye exactly where you are, there's no reason to say, oh, brother, that, that was not God. No, no, that was God. And so he began to talk about some other things very personal. He said, but what you're doing as a covenant man, that was the key word, is that you're providing for your wife the exit that she needs. And I began to look at things differently from that point. The exit that she needs. I had had a conversation with the nurse, with the social worker. They said, why do you stay here day after day after day and take care of your wife? Why don't you put her in a home? They said, don't you see what's happening? I said, oh, I see. I said, but see, this is what you don't understand. And I didn't have to explain a thing to them. I just could have said, nanny. How many of you know what nanny means? None of your business. <laughs> That's why I stay home. But no, I wanted to explain it to them. I said, see, what you don't understand is we connected 41 years ago. We have been married 39 of them. And that day when I stood before the altar, before God, before Apostle Sanders and the witnesses, that married us and all of those in the congregation. When he came to the point where he said, in the vows is for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. I said, so what am I supposed to do? Take the positive three, and now she's come to the most vulnerable time in her life when she needs the love of the man in the earth who loves her more than any other man other than God. She needs me to leave now? I said, you don't get it. You don't understand. This is not a chore for me. This is covenant. They said, well, what about money? I said, well, either I'll find out if my father is going to take care of us or if he's not. So the next visit, she said, would you please tell, they brought a different person, them, what you told us last week. I said, sure, I'd be glad to. Then they said, would you please teach our husbands? <laughs> you see, when the rubber meets the highway, what's really in you, that's what's coming forth. You see, the investment that began 70 years ago, there should really begin, we should begin to see a real harvest of that now. That word that's been there is as seed in the ground all of these years. It's right of Dale, somebody that you have relationship with, not a stranger, somebody that you've known who's been here, part of the process, to point and say, let's get with it. Let's get with it. 
how long are we going to just allow it to remain seed in the ground? It is now time for a fuller manifestation. And it was after that that the Lord said, now, I'm going to up the conversation with you. And he took me to Acts 10, verse 38. So if you've been waiting for me to give you a verse of Scripture, here it is. Peter is in a situation that he hadn't planned. In fact, if he could have had his way, he wouldn't have even been there. Because he wasn't delivered fully yet of his idiosyncrasies as a Jewish man and his prejudices. He's working his way through it. It hasn't been really... Uh, a great deal of time since they were initially filled with the Holy Ghost. And how many of you understand that when you are filled with the Holy Ghost, you don't necessarily hang up all of your hang-ups immediately. Some of those things you've got to work your way through. Are you with me here? And so God sets this whole thing up by commending Cornelius concerning that that he was faithful to, he was devout, and God said this is commendable, but what we're going to do now is upgrade. Everybody say upgrade. In the process of upgrading, he said, you've got to send for special help. I've already prepared him. He doesn't even know it yet. Because the next day, see, Peter began to have visions. See, God can, get, God can speak to you when you're hungry. It's about lunchtime. So he's probably, you know, ready for lunch. And God says, no, I've got another meal for you before you go down. And he showed him this, this knitted sheet descending out of the heavens from the four corners. And everything up there, and he tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And it's amazing the oxymoron that comes out of his mouth, not so, Lord. How can you call him Lord and say no at the same time? You see, so, so the Lord didn't just let it drift by three times. He dealt with this thing. And he told him each time what I have cleansed. You don't call common anymore. And Peter wasn't seeing through what all was really going on at that moment. He's pondering because he's a man of the spirit now. And he knows with something this dynamic, you just can't put it, file it away in the corner and say, I'll get back to that later. No, you need to think about this. And at the time, uh, representatives from Cornelius' house comes to receive him. He's staying at one Simon the Tanner's house. Now, if the brothers back in Jerusalem had known that, he would have to give an account. Just the fact that he was at a Tanner's house, an unclean profession as far as the Jewish culture is concerned. Now he's about to go to people that they aren't ready to wrap their arms around in love and embrace yet. And God has set this whole thing up. So I can see Peter on his way still pondering, saying, I wonder what this is about. Although the Holy Ghost has, has already instructed him, go with them. Go with them. And he's pondering, what in the world is all of this about? And he gets there, and Cornelius greet him. He bows before him. Peter said, no, stand up on your feet. I'm, I'm just a man like you. And then he begins to speak. And when you get to verse 38, here it is. He says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. I said, whoa, okay. And it's like new insight into that verse came into my understanding. 
with the Holy Ghost and with power. Now, years ago when we were praying classical Pentecost, we said, Lord, anoint me with the Holy Ghost and with power. And there's a measure of power that comes with the baptism of the Holy Spirit because Jesus said that after you have received the Holy Ghost, you will receive power from on high. So in that initial experience, there is power. And we would pray, God anoint us with the Holy Ghost and with power. But when you read Luke chapter 4 and, and you study, after his baptism, Jesus, after his affirmation by the Father, that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, now I'm going to begin to execute the assignment, dominion assignment in earth through this person, through this man, Son of Man, that I have prepared for this time, a, a body I've given him. That body has grown up. That body has matured. You walk through Luke chapter 2, and what you'll see is his birth. You'll see him as a young child. You'll see him in his, in his presentation to the temp, in the temple, how that you had a prophet there named Simeon and a prophetess named Anna who basically intercepted him, spoke over him before the old order could put their decrees on him. God had already shifted things and had already launched him into what he was going to do. You see this. Then you see him growing as, as, as a youngster. You see him growing in wisdom, increasing in stature. You see him at age 12 going to, with the caravan to the time of the festivals when they would do that. And uh, you see him in the temple talking with the heavy revies and his, and his family. They're on their way back to Nazareth where he lived. We see all this. We see really a microcosmic view of his life just unfold right before us. Now, I don't know what you would have done, but if my 12-year-old son had decided he was going to stay back and have a party and it's time for the family to go home, when I got him, I would have put something on him. I ain't going to tell you I would have put something on him. I'm going to put something on him. I would have put something on him. I'm telling you, it would have been something that he would have remembered too. So for the next 18 years, we don't hear any more from him. It's the silent period. It's what I call the season of darkness, where God is building treasure inside of you that will be released at its appointed time. Then in chapter 3, we see him, 30 years old now, 18 years of God developing him, getting him ready, He's observing, I'm sure, while he's in Nazareth. Because remember, he grew up in Galilee. Galilee was the region where you had many messianic claimants rising up, producing uproars, producing melees all the time, and Rome having to send their legions to stomp those wildfires out. That's why when Jesus said, all who have ever come before me, were thieves and robbers. He wasn't talking about the devil. He was talking about every last one of those Messiah claimants that he saw arise in that Galilee region. But he said, I'm the real deal. I'm the authentic thing from the Father. And so we see him baptized. We see that. We see the witness of the Father. We see the witness of the Spirit. We see the Son present. So if nothing else speaks to the manifestation of God in diversity, what we call the Godhead, that one incident does, if it can't be seen any other place. It wasn't just all in him. We see the Holy Ghost descending, the Father speaking. 
We see the witness. Now, he can be released. Before that, he would have been unauthorized. Then in chapter 4, Jesus being full, everybody say with me, full, of the Spirit. The word there, full, is the word pleres, which is simply a nautical term that means that it's like a ship that has been stacked to the brim. You can't put anything else on it. And that's how it's describing the Holy Ghost that's in him. And he's led by that same Holy Ghost into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. What temptation is he going to face? Go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, and you'll see that which is common to all men. He's got to face off with issues concerning the lust of the flesh. He's got to face it, lust of the eyes, pride of life, because every temptation is crafted around one of those three. If he had failed at any point, listen to the voice of the serpent and accepted his misinformation at any point, then what we would see is another model failure. But Jesus was able to come out of there unscathed because he knew the word. What has brothers, what did Brother Sexton and Brother Sexton, Brother Lightner, what really was the focus in this house? It was the word. You see, he was able to quote when the devil said, if thou be the son of God, if you're confused about your identity, then turn these stones into bread. You see, what he was trying to do is deregulate his appetite. Because if your appetite can become deregulated, you eat anything. I don't have time to explore all of that with you. I'm just throwing seed out here, just reminding you of some stuff. All right? And so he refused to, but what he did say was that it is written that man shall not live by, come on, quote it with me, bread alone, but... Do you know where he quoted that from? It's Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse, read verse 2 and verse 3 together. Then here comes the next set because what he shows them is the thing about power because he knows that to a man untouched by God, power is appearing. Now, other than a number of other things that are going on in this dynamic, why would a billionaire really want to become president? Come on, it isn't about money. It isn't even about an opportunity to, you know, to have more money once he's done being president. It's about power, folks. Power. When you're in a position, and here it is, you're known as the leader of the free world. That's a powerful position. And the devil said, listen, if you, if you bow and you worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms that I've just shown you. You would be the most powerful man on earth. 
The only requirement is just bow and worship me. And once again, he quotes from Deuteronomy, that you shall worship the Lord and serve him only. Hallelujah. So therefore, Jesus understood that inherent in worship and who you worship determines how you serve and what you serve. Because the purpose of power is about service. It's who are you going, can you take, receive this power from God and serve somebody else other than yourself more effectively. So he didn't become deregulated there. So the third test is the devil starts quoting scripture. These are things you know. I'm just reminding you. And he doesn't quote from Psalm 90, the failure chapter. He quotes from Psalm 91, the chapter of those who abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And he talked about how that if he jumped off that peak, man, that, hey, or the pinnacle of the temple, he said, listen, not even a stone will dash your feet. Now, was that in Psalm 91? Yeah, you read on through it, you'll see. Basically, that is there. But this is what he said. Here, here was his comeback. You're not to tempt the Lord thy God. Because when you study this word tempt, it goes back to something that is called Massah. And at that place, this was the temptation. Here was the challenge. Is God really among us or not? Can God really prepare a table in the wilderness or not? And whenever you hear those words echoed, that's the words of an orphan. Because an orphan is concerned primarily about two things. Who's going to provide for me and who's going to protect me. And everything, you take every love command that an orphan may receive, they'll take that to serve themselves first. And if there is any left for you, then maybe I'll give you some. This is why after the battle of the kings, God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, I am thy shield and exceeding great reward. Hallelujah. What he was saying is, listen, I'm your protection. And you study the word reward out, it's the word salary. I'm your provision. It's good that you walk through that test to whether you would take some of the accumulation from the battle to become yours. And yet there was in you that that was already working by me that resisted the urge to put your hands on anything in covetousness or, or, or to acquire it or greed. You said, hey, he said to the king, you can have it all because you'll never be able to say that you made Abraham rich. And out of that, God said, you got it. You got it. That orphan spirit is not on you. Now, I'll get back to that in just a moment. Yes, sir. The provision of grace and the Holy Ghost, you've got everything you need. Huh? 
So go from 1, Luke 4, 1, to Luke 4, 14. And you know what it says in Luke 4, 14? And Jesus came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And I realized something right there at that point, that sandwiched in between going in full without yet a, a display of power that it takes God trying every Sunday to see how you're going to handle what you've received. And if you're going to yield to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, because the second thing was he showed him all the kingdoms of the sea. Come on, something coming through his eye gate. Third one, pride of life. <laughs> and the, the word pride there is that that provides you a bragging chip. Because you study the word is that that produces braggadocio. Self-aggrandizement. You're so locked into self that you think yourself has produced everything that you have in life. When Jesus already said when, before he was leaving, without me you can do nothing. And so he passed through that, and therefore he came out with power. And so with the conversation that the Lord was having with me, I said, okay, I get it. I said, maybe the reason that I wasn't fully unable to operate there yet, because I hadn't taken the time to understand and now I see it. That's why you'll never catch me putting a price tag on anything. I was at a place one time, they said, what do you sell your books for? Nothing. I said, if you want to give something, fine. If you don't, that's fine too. Don't I look like I'm really hurting? Then I look like I'm really broke. Never have been. Every book I've ever written was paid for before it ever come from the publisher's books. Every one. And I have published 11. And getting ready to write some more. You see, if Father has assigned you that, then he equally takes on the obligation to pay for it. Hallelujah. Now let me deal with one other aspect of this. One other aspect of this. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 9, we call that, and from there from 9, what, to about 13, I, I trust that's the right address. We call that the Lord's Prayer, right? Now, what you could subtitle Matthew chapter 6 is the kind of motivation by which you give this whether you're giving alms, whether you're giving in prayer, whether you're giving in money, whether you are forgiving, which is a kind of giving. And then he has there for us uh, what I call some object lessons to explain. But in Matthew, when, when you begin what is called the Lord's Prayer, how does it begin? Our Father, come on, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done 
in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us as we. So that's conditional. Come on, finish it up. Tempted. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Glory forever. Amen. You know what I realize is going on just recently in those words? But first, he was saying, this is how you engage heaven. This is how you bring forth. You engage heaven. You tap into the heart of heaven. And you release it into earth. He said, this is how you do it. But there were five things that I saw that every son has to have in order to be secure. Now, I'll tell you what those five things are in just a moment. There was a social scientist named Abraham Maslow. How many of you ever heard that name? Abraham Maslow. All right. He had some proposals from his studies that said these are five things that he's been able to ascertain that every person needs, regardless of color, culture, ethnicity, background, country, doesn't matter. People need these five things. He said, first of all, you've got to have your physiological needs met. You come into this world as a baby, come on, somebody else has got to take care of you. You're not capable of doing it yourself. And so he just began to lay out some of those things. The second thing he said is that you've got to have someone to provide safety for you. Third thing was your belongingness needs. You've got to be connected to somebody other than you. You are not alone on this earth. God made man gregarious. The, third, the fourth thing was he said that every person has esteem needs. Now we adjust that a little bit by saying Every person needs to be aware of their worth and your value that God placed in you. DNA. It's his DNA, but what's in the intricacies of that DNA is something that's totally unique to you. No other person has it. No other person will ever have it. It's yours. And that is what establishes the sense of your worth and your value to humanity. The fifth thing that he said was that if you move through those four, you come to something called actualization. How we describe that is you discover what your purpose is. You run the race with that purpose, and you finish. And at the close of it, you're able to tell everybody, I have finished my course. But you've got to run the race first. Now, listen carefully to me. I studied those things in my first year psychology course. And that was about 45 years ago. And I never forgot it. Now, why the Lord permitted that to remain? Because there was a whole lot of stuff I forgot. But I never forgot that. You know, Dale, what I, what I determined was that, you know, even a blind squirrel can stumble up on an acorn every now and again. <laughs> and 
And what he was laying out was something that was true, not necessarily true. It was true concerning every human. But when I studied the prayer, this is what I realized was true. When we acknowledge him as our father, what we're equally acknowledging is our sonship. What we're stating clearly is what our position is. I'm a son. I'm a son right now. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It hasn't fully been made manifest all that we are, but we are right now. Because as many as received him to them, he gave the power to become. Okay. So we know this thing is about sonship. That's our position with our father. Then we have the acknowledgement of his holiness because he is holy. Hallowed be thy name. Then here's the second aspect of it that every son needs. He needs clarity about his position. His identity. Second thing is clarity about his purpose. Because when you say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh -huh. That's your purpose. Every vision statement, if it's a real church, should be crafted around that idea. Because that's the original God idea. Adam released into earth to produce the kingdom. Hallelujah. Representation as well as resemblance. Here's the third thing. It deals with provision. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Provision. What you're saying is, Father, you've given me purpose. Now to execute that purpose, we need your provision. And if there's anything, anything, idea that sums up what the provision of God is, is in the Holy Ghost, is abiding in Christ, is experiencing his all-consuming grace, that's his provision for everything that we need. So you got position, purpose, provision. What's number four? Where am I at? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from all this evil. There's your protection. I know that my father is not going to lead me into temptation because that's inconsistent with his nature. I know my father is going to watch over me. Hallelujah. Because the thing that he told me is that I am in his hands and nothing can pluck me out of his hands. We see Jesus at times moving through the crowd. The crowds, they're ready to stone him. They're ready to kill him. They're ready to push him over the edge of a cliff. And he walked right through the midst of them. We see the Father protecting him. 
we have the reality of that same kind of protection. I was in North Carolina recently, and the, and the hurricane was coming up Matthew, and it had already come up Florida, and it come on coast there in South Carolina and was coming on up, I-95, basically. And I called Apostle Murray. I said, shall we go on with the meeting? And, uh, and this is what he said to me. In the Army, it doesn't ever rain. I said, okay, let's go for it. So when I got there and stood in Moorhead City, which they were predicting was going to be hit pretty solidly, I stood and I said, Lord, I'm your son. Your servant said in the army, it doesn't rain. I said, so, we're going to watch your provision. And I'm telling you, as powerful as that storm was, what we had on Moorhead City, was sunlight. Had a little bit of breeze the day that we did not have service. Woke up Sunday morning. Skies are blue. Hallelujah. Sun is out. Lights are still on. I said, yes. Yes. You see, I had had experience with this before when Hurricane Andrew, as powerful as that was, came on. I went out. The Lord spoke to me. He said, go out and walk your property seven times. So I'm out there walking, and the children, they're saying, they said, Mama, what in the world's Daddy doing? She said, you go out and join him. And so here I am, leading the little ducklings around the, around the property, and we're walking seven times, and I'm saying, Lord, you gave us this. You said that whatever I put my feet on, you said you'd bless it. Come on, see, I'm, I, I, I'm remembering all that word I packed inside of me. Now I'm unpacking it. Hallelujah. Well, we didn't get the storm. Tree didn't even blow down. Not even a shingle blew off my roof. Later, Hurricane Charlie, 2004, just taking my son to law school, and Ann called me. She said, you need to get back here because they said this thing is going to be horrible, and it was. But it wasn't for us. When I got home, I looked into the community. I pointed my finger. I said, this is the word of the Lord. This storm will not tear up this community. The city required us to vacate because they were concerned about storm surge. So we left. And when it passed, it came on and it turned into the barrier islands. Talking about Sanibel, Captiva. And it hit those barrier islands, and it was coming. The storm always moves toward a warm water source. And the Caloosahatchee in August, it warmed. So the possibility was it was going to come straight into the Caloosahatchee, which would have come right by my house. But this is what happened. When it hit the barrier islands, it then took a sharp left turn. And it went somewhere else. Now, I, I don't wish it on them. But all I knew is that God gave us authority over even the elements. <laughs> Hallelujah. So when it was gone, I'm standing in the shelter watching it rain sideways about 130 or 40 miles an hour. And I'm thinking, wow. So after it was over, we passed by, I said, Ann, let's go back across. And when I got back across, I didn't even see one single 
light line down. And we had just dealt with a 145-mile-an-hour storm. There was not even one bent pole. I got to my street, not one shingle off my house, not one tree blown down. I looked at my neighbors, same thing. I said, he's a God of his word. This word works. Our Father really will protect us. I've been in situations flying. When you fly three million miles, you can get into some situations. There can be those that absolutely terrify you if you're given to terror. But I said, Father, I'm your servant. I'm in your hands. And I'm not going to let that which can produce terror terrify me. Because I've seen you prove yourself too often. You see, the final one in this group, you got position, purpose, protection, or excuse me, provision, protection, four. Okay, position, purpose, provision, protection. You know what number five is? It's pleasure. The reason you were created was for his pleasure. That's what Revelation chapter 4, I believe in verse 11, tells us. That he's created all things. And for your pleasure, it was all created. This earth was designed for you to understand pleasure. That's why you need to take a vacation. Go find out concerning some of these things that God has placed here for you. Now you take every cabinet member when, they're, when you question them about their authority. You know what they'll tell you? I serve at the pleasure of the president. You know what we should be saying? I serve at the pleasure of the king. And the king happens to be my father. Hallelujah. So really what you guys get to do, Josh, uh, Clark, Josh, you serve at the pleasure of the king. Hallelujah. And when those five things are working in every son, there's absolutely no orphan condition that can exist in the house. And these are building blocks that we must shore the house up with. Take the time to develop and unpack each of these ideas. God said to Israel, I didn't call you. Or you didn't call me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. So this is what I'm going to show you. Yes, I can provide a table in the wilderness. Yes, I can protect you and keep the enemies of the land from attacking you and destroying you. Yes, I can. Hallelujah. And if you'll work with me, you'll understand what my real pleasure is, that I'm giving you 
an inheritance that nobody can take from you. I'm doing that. Take the time to unpack those ideas. And let's make sure as we are moving forward that the next generation is clear about these things. Okay? Can you say amen? All right. I'll read some, a little bit more scripture next time. God bless you. Grace and peace to you. I love you. Yes. Keep us in prayer. Pastor Chuck. All that we are, we have, and ever will be, we owe to him. In him we live and move and have our being. We are purpose. We are privileged to have a purpose in him. Let's stand, please. We thank the Lord for the ministry that has come and blessed us with the word. I don't know if you realize the caliber of words you heard this weekend. You don't find that everywhere. You don't hear these words of life just any place. God has blessed us, challenged us to lay hold in a greater fashion. He, pur he has purposed us and challenged us to become what he desires us to be, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Any uh, condition there is your choice. We know who he said we are. Now you choose to become who he said we are. Huh? Blessed be his name. Blessed be his name. Father, again, we just seal these words to our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you give us the vision. You, you purposed us, my God. We're, we're continually walking and being directed by you. And the things that come up before us, my God, those challenges, my God, you are already through them. You already have given us a way out, a way to overcome. And Lord, we thank you. And Lord, your purpose is that to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne as I have sat with my father in his throne. Father, we thank you that your word is the power and the provision to do it, the authority to do it. And he says, to him that overcometh, that gives us the ability to overcome. 
And we thank you for it. Let your word, my God, dwell within us and produce, my God, your very desire of your heart. And we thank you for all these things in the holy and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? Lord bless you. See you next week.